0: A science story, huh? Is NYU a scientists uh, they felt, felt I, felt right. I was so And I just happy. thought, well... I had figured it, out. Wow.
1: it was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey
0: everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Glider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week's story is from David Kipping. It was recorded in January 2015 at Town Hall in Seattle, Washington, as part of the Springer Storytellers series.
1: Um, so I thought I'd share with you today a story about something which really affects my scientific philosophy every day, but it might appear a bit left field when I first talk about it. So this is a story which starts about eight years ago. It was a time when i just finished my undergraduate degree in physics at Cambridge, and I was about to start a PhD in astronomy. But honestly, I felt quite adrift at this time, because when you're an undergraduate, you always have an exam to study for, an assignment to hand in, and you have this um, incredible focus during four years. You always know where you're going. Whereas when you finish that and you're suddenly about to start a PhD and you can do whatever you want in that PhD, it's kind of a bit... Overwhelming. You don't really know what subfield of astronomy you're going to be interested in, or at least I didn't. I wasn't sure if I could be one of those guys, one of those astrophysicists. It just seemed like these were people in an ivory tower who were so much smarter than me. I didn't know if I could really be one of those people. So, um, to kind of clear my head, I decided to take a long break, and I went off to visit India. And this is where my story takes place. The reason I went to India is because I'd always had a special place in my heart for mountains. And in England, of course, where I'm from, we don't have many mountains. We just have these timid hills. And I'd spent my weekend sort of hiking around these timid hills, but it wasn't very satisfying. So I decided to go to the biggest mountain range in the world I could find on a map, which is the Himalayas. Um, Honestly, I had basically zero experience of mountaineering or climbing or anything. But I had this kind of uh, ridiculous, foolish, reckless fearlessness about me, so I just bought a book on mountaineering, just one book, and I, I read it from cover to cover, looked, looked at the little figures, so I had this kind of scientific way of thinking, I guess, looked at the figures and worked out how to do it, and uh, I, I practiced abseiling down the side of my parents' house, which they weren't very happy about, um, and I just bought a rope and ice axe and crampons and went off to the Himalayas, and uh, I didn't even buy a helmet, I just figured that's a waste of space. So uh, this, this kind of reckless attitude um, got me in a bit of trouble when I was, when I was out there. So I'd uh, taken on a couple of uh, relatively small 10,000 to 15,000 foot mountains in Kashmir. And then I went over to Ladakh, which is on the Tibetan plateau in the east. And there was a 23,000 foot mountain that I'd set my sights on. And I thought, if I can climb that, I can do anything. That's, that's my Everest to climb that mountain. Um, So I met up with a couple of friends, and uh, they told me that you had to actually buy a permit, first of all, to climb the mountain. I had no idea that was necessary. And and additionally, you have to have Sherpas. You can't go out without Sherpas. It's just not allowed. So I'd actually spent almost all my money just getting to India. I didn't really have any spare money left over for this. So I had to dig deep into my savings account to actually scrape up enough money to do this. Um, But I managed to do it, and I went off with these guys. And I was so excited to be finally taking on this big mountain. And as we went up, I suddenly became very frustrated. And the reason was because the Sherpas wanted to take it really slowly. At least that's what it felt like to me. They said, you can only ascend 700 meters a day, otherwise you'll get uh, altitude sickness. And I, I just didn't have the patience for that. That meant by basically late morning, you had done for the day. You just sat around the camp for four or five hours and then go to bed. And as a young, sort of ambitious man, I was like, no, I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna go off and do some climbing. So I saw some cliffs in, uh, in the distance, and I just said, I'm gonna go off, walked off with a rope right by myself, and went off climbing. And when I got to the cliffs, I should have stopped, really, because they were sandstone. So it's a terrible medium to climb. <laughs> it breaks off in your hands. But I, I didn't care, I just went up it. Um, and I got to the top okay, but going down is always harder than going up. And uh, I started to abseil down. And I was doing this, by the way, in the old-fashioned way. That's when you put a rope around your collar and under your thigh, no harness. So you get really bad rope burn doing (laughs) abseiling this way. And eventually I got stuck because everything I hooked the rope onto just broke off. And uh, I realized I was going to have to go down the same way I came up, just kind of, you know, gingerly go down. And I got stuck quite quickly. I looked to my left. There was no handholds. To my right, no handholds, no footholds below. I was completely stuck. And then I saw this big outcrop of rock sticking out. Perfect handhold. But it was too far away for me to reach. I had to jump to get to it. And I I figured, uh, okay, I've seen Mission Impossible. and (laughs) I can do that. So I, I, I don't know how I had this confidence, but I just took it on. I took a deep breath, and I jumped. And I got both hands perfectly purchased on this rock. But as I gripped onto it, it broke away from the cliff face. And I fell back. And as I fell backwards through the air, I realized I had no idea how high it was off the ground, really. It was of order of anywhere between 10 feet and 100 feet. I just hadn't really registered it because I was so confident I could make it. So it was the first time I genuinely thought to myself, I could break my neck, I could break my back, I could actually die here. And it was a very strange feeling. I remember audibly making a scream and thinking, that's weird that I made a scream because there's no one else here. It's just me (laughs) falling. And then I, I hit the ground and I didn't break anything, fortunately. And the thing that saved me was it was on a, on a slope. It was on a 45 degree scree slope. So it screezed like little pebbles and sharp rocks. So was, the bad side of that is that even though I didn't break anything because I immediately started rolling, the bad side is I couldn't stop rolling. So I'm rolling and rolling down this scree slope, getting cut all over myself. I managed to right myself and get my feet down the slope. And then I dig my heel in and try and stop. And then my knee clicks really bad. I feel excruciating pain just go through my body. And finally I stop and I I remember sitting on that slope for two or three hours just feeling, first of all, a lot of pain, second of all, just incredibly embarrassed and stupid about what I'd just done. So I I went back to camp, hobbled back to camp very slowly and I was too embarrassed to tell everyone else at the camp what I'd done. Um, I think they guessed because I had to wrap up my knee with a bandage I felt so sick from the pain I couldn't even eat, I was just throwing up food. So as we went up, I kept trying to climb up for the others. By the fourth day, I had to stop. I got really bad altitude sickness. I couldn't even get off my hands and knees. One of the Sherpas took me down. And as I went down, I had this mixture of emotions. I felt sort of humiliation and shame for not being able to accomplish this goal, which I'd really, really wanted to do. I felt embarrassed that I was so stupid to do do this climb a sandstone cliff. And um, just generally kind of low morale and quite depressed. So I got back to the town, and there was nothing really else for me to do apart from recover. I had about two weeks before I had to fly back to England. Um, so I'd start to visit monasteries in the area because that was a thing that was free and I uh, didn't have any money by this point, and it, was also, it wasn't going to hurt my knee. So I just sat in on morning prayers and, with these monasteries, and I remember observing the intense focus they had during these chants, and I just sort of contemplated what I was doing in my life. Uh, was I really going to be able to do this PhD? Um, what, where was I going? And... I remember that time thinking to myself that I could either live with these fears or I could take on the things that I was scared of and actually take hold of my life. And the first thing on this list was to go back to that mountain. So I went back, Um, had a bandaged knee and I hobbled back to that mountain. By this point, I had no money left at all. I couldn't afford a permit, I couldn't afford Sherpas, so I had to go by myself. But I thought, that's okay. I know the route up to base camp and then I'll just straight line up to the summit from there. It's a pretty stupid attitude, but that's my plan. It meant, because I didn't have a permit, I had to avoid the main camping ground. So I was just camping by myself. I didn't interact with anyone for five days. And the only food I could afford was one loaf of bread for four four days, hiking a 23,000-foot mountain. So I remember also being very hungry for (laughs) four days. Um, So as I was camping by myself, there was really nothing to do. There was no one to talk to, and I was completely bored. So I just started just to look up at the sky. There was nothing else to do. And I'd never really looked at the sky that way before. I stared at it for hours and hours on end. And suddenly I realized that the stars were captivating, enchanting, and beautiful. I would never thought of them that way before, even though I was about to do an astronomy degree, PhD. So uh, when I was lying under these stars, under the moonlight, I started to think about what if some of those stars had planets? Um, what, what, how long would an eclipse last for if a planet passed in front of those stars? So I went to the back of my journal, which I was writing a little journal of what I was doing every day. And I went to the back, and I started to write down equations. And there was no judge. There was no teacher assessing my work. It was just me by myself doing it freely. Um, so I started to write down equations, what, how long the eclipse would be. And then I did maybe in an eccentric orbit rather than a circular orbit. And I wrote down these equations, and I realized I could do astrophysics. I shouldn't be scared of it. I just had this basic math, that I knew from university, and I had this um, inspiration from the sky, and I had some time to quietly concentrate on the problem. And I realized I could actually do astrophysics with those three things together. And those equations actually turned into my first paper when I went back to uh, London. That was my first, I wrote it within about a month or two, had my first paper out, which is kind of rare to get a paper so quickly, but it was all just the back of my book. There's equations already there. So I felt intellectually invigorated and sort of a renewed sense of purpose. So I kept hobbling up this mountain, and I did get to the top. Um, I remember falling onto my knees at the summit in the snow above the clouds, and it was stunningly beautiful. I'll never be able to describe to you, unfortunately, how beautiful it was. encourage you to try and maybe see some, one of these sites one day yourself. Um, and I remember having, not embarrassed to say, I had tears in my eyes. It was so beautiful. And on the way down, I felt exhilarated. I'd achieved this goal, which I'd set out to do. And I'd failed once, but I wasn't afraid to accept that failure and go back and try again. And I realized that the human spirit is powerful, and the only limits are really the fears that we allow to hold us back. And I think about those lessons a lot in my research. So the thing I'm trying to do is to find the first exomoon, the first moon around another planet, around another star. And when I started that, a lot of my peers said, that's crazy. Like, why are you doing that? That's so out there. What if you fail? What if you don't succeed? Why not stick to the safer routes of science? But I think if you have a dream, then you have to go for it. Um, if you approach a problem with a cool head and an indomitable spirit, then those fears and those boundaries just fall away. And that's what I learned from the mountains. Thank you.
0: That was David Kipping. David is an astronomer based at the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, where he researches extrasolar planets and moons. The story was produced with Springer Science and Business Media as part of the Springer Storyteller series, featuring real-life stories from researchers on the front lines of discovery. See and hear more at beforetheabstract.com. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Wecht, Darren Barker, Ari Daniel, Christine Gentry, and Skylar Baer. The podcast is produced by Rose Eveleth. Additional help from Brooke Williams, Lena Groger, and Justin D'Ambrosio. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Town Hall for hosting the show, to Springer Storytellers for being amazing partners, and to Mountains for being close to the sky. Thanks for listening.